Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them to uh, the reading from 2 Thessalonians. And that's where we're going to hang out today, uh, talk of uh, persecution and vengeance and other things that are difficult to consider together. So before we start, why don't I just open with a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your nature and for your character, for your um, stewardship of this world and bringing things to their rightful consummation. I pray that um, you would help us, Lord, to step into these uh, subjects which are dear to you and were dear to Jesus and to Paul and to many, many uh, believers who have uh, um, experienced uh, the weight of um, suffering and persecution in ways that uh, maybe we haven't. So I just pray that you will open our hearts and make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. So Thessalonians um, is a, uh, a really interesting, it's still a very interesting city, actually. It's a, it's a globally important city to this day, founded back in 315 BC by a general of Alexander the Great who was pushing uh, Greek culture uh, around the known world. Um, Thessalonians named by the general for his wife. Isn't that wonderful? See, they could be magnanimous. Um, it was automatically a uh, prosperous and important city. It's a port city. Um, and the letters to the church there uh, were written by Paul, who visited this city on his second mis missionary journey. He made multiple missionary journeys. That guy traveled, I'll tell you, um, on foot and in very inhospitable environments. Um, you can read about it in Acts 17 which if you don't do this already, uh, reading Acts along with the letters is really, really helpful. Um, you'll get a, some of the color commentary from Acts that gives some context to the letters that are written back to those churches. Um, the Thessalonian letters are the earliest Christian documents that we have, actually. Um, and uh, not entirely sure which one actually comes first. Uh, um, just still kind of working on that one. Um, in any case, this is a very early uh, community um, and uh, we learn a lot about um, the emerging Christian community by reading these letters. Um, we don't really know exactly who the persecutors were. Um, could have been uh, multiple different groups. It could have been on a grand scale. It could have been highly localized. There was a lot going on in the city at the time. Roman influence is starting to be on the ascend and moving aside some of the Greek uh, influences politically. Uh, we know that there was a lot of Jewish opposition to the gospel at the time. Although many Jews did believe the gospel, there were others who were very much opposed, probably upset all the more because some Jewish people were becoming believers in Jesus. And also, uh, Paul spent some period of time there. This is where the word tent making comes from. He was a tent maker, earning his own income while he was ministering to the congregation there, would have been reaching out to non-Judaized Greeks. So uh, one kind of important thing, I don't mind the, uh, the collaboration there, so. <laughs> so. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the gospel spread, spread to the Greeks first among Greeks who were called God-fearers. They were attending the synagogue. They hadn't converted to Judaism exactly. They hadn't been circumcised. But they worshiped the God of Israel. Those were the Gentiles who first believed in the gospel. They were already acclimated to 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and worshiped him already. That's kind of the first ring of Gentiles. There was an outer ring, which were Gentiles who had no knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They probably knew about Jewish people because there were Jewish people in their communities, but hadn't really had a whole lot of engagement. Paul, in his tent making, undoubtedly would have come into contact with Gentiles who weren't part of the synagogue and would have been sharing the gospel there as well. So there's a lot of a lot going on in these little congregations, a lot of diversity, a lot of social economic diversity in there, and a lot of things happening politically around them. And so it's hard to pinpoint exactly here what the source of persecution was, but it was obviously severely felt. So Paul is writing back to these congregations to help them navigate the complexity of that kind of suffering. It's the suffering that comes when you're doing the right thing. And uh, how do you understand that? Um, you know, it, it kind of common sense would tell you that you should prosper when you do the right thing, um, particularly when, you know, it, when the, the, uh, the right thing is worshiping the one true God. Wouldn't he be the one that makes make sure that you don't suffer? And here we have it upside down. Um, it was the God followers who seemed to be struggling here. And that's a complicated situation. It's still a complicated situation. If you go and study theology at a university, that's the first thing you're going to do is study a problem of evil. You know, um, it's a problem on many levels, intellectually, uh, but primarily emotionally and personally. And so, I want to do two things here. One is I just want to understand the content of Paul's teaching, but I also want very much to pay attention to how Paul is teaching. Uh, those two things go hand in hand. Um, first of all, you'll see that Paul, and I think we take this kind of uh, almost like uh, as a matter of fact, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church. Okay, let's just hang on to that for a second because there's a lot going on just in this way of address. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are very welcome people in this congregation. They would have really liked just even reading their names. They weren't forgotten. They were attended to. Paul's saying, we're together. You're the church. Now, the topic of suffering here then is framed by this community. And when he says, to the church, that's very weighty and very powerful. That group of people had never been called anything before but bad names. And within that congregation would have been people who had been not called anything but slave. Or I could use other stronger words, but I want to be careful to to our ears here, but uh, some people had not been called very nice names here and did not have any particular sense of identity. Some of them did, but many of them didn't. Paul immediately, very quickly, kind of confers nobility and dignity upon this group of people. You are the church. You. Now imagine just a group of, you know, uh, not much bigger than this, probably maybe even smaller than this, sitting around in a house you know, in a very, uh, you know, in a kind of a neighborhood in Thessalonica. And here is the apostle saying, I'm, I'm conferring on you this dignity, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It must have been really wonderful to be addressed like that, probably new, probably arresting. Churches are not affinity groups. Uh, that's really important to understand. They weren't just gathering together like a club. And I'm not trying here to diminish clubs. Many of us here belong to clubs. I mean, 
you know, the boating community, for example, is just full of clubs and, and associations, and the Naval Academy has its own clubs and associations, and there are, you know, there are clubs and associations that we form uh, based on our affinities, and those are good ways of building connections. This is not the church. The church is a body, and that's much different. It's the body of Messiah. The body of Messiah is formed not through affinity, but through new birth. It's an organic person in a certain kind of metaphorical way. It grows. It has a purpose. It has a future. And it's important to know this for ourselves. Do we know that we gather as a body and not just a group? That's very different. The aims of a body are to show solidarity in suffering, not the aims of a group to share common interests. So right away, Paul, in the way that he addresses the community, doesn't just kind of give them lecture notes on the idea of suffering. Rather, he sends a personal letter establishing the relationship, calling upon the new identity of the community in Thessalonica, and raises them up into their true sense of who they are in Christ. It's, it's already a very strong and galvanizing thing, and it's through that that the teaching of, of um, God's judgment comes. So we move right into the next section here, starting in verse 3, which is a section of thanksgiving and boasting. Again, nothing here is superfluous. These, this is a short letter, but each of these components are so essential. Thanksgiving and boasting create a very strong bond within the body of Messiah. And I want to tease that out a little bit. Some of us here have been practicing over the last year gratitude, for example. And we, for those of us that have participated in sharing gratitude and forming gratitude and connecting with God and with each other through gratitude, just know what that feels like in our sense of identity to be uh, exploring our gratitude to God and the bond that that shares. Paul is essentially saying this, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to God for you because of what I see, and I want others to see that too. That's what he means by boasting. He says in, in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. I mean, again, imagine being that small, you know, suffering congregation in Thessalonica, and what the Apostle Paul is telling you is that I see you, and I talk about you, to other people because of what I see. I am thankful to God for you because of what I see, and I'm, I want others to see it too. That relational quality is so important here for the context of suffering. Here we're starting to see the equation build. build. Paul plus God plus the Thessalonians plus the larger body of Christ. It's that important building of community that will provide resilience and strength. It extends outwards evermore. Paul boasts about them to others in the body of Messiah, and they become an example of others to imitate. Now, I've, imitation is actually a really essential quality that Paul addresses regarding discipleship. And here, uh, there are several citations I could bring forward. I want to lift out Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. I've been reading uh, a lot about this feature of uh, imitation. 
And in fact, it's a very beautiful and extremely powerful dynamic in the way that babies come to know themselves. Um, the Greek word behind imitation is mimesis. So there's a fancy word is a, a mimetic or imitative, imitative, see mimetic is easier to say, uh, quality about what happens when a baby sees a mother imitate it. And in fact, the baby seeing the mother imitate its own features is forming their own sense of identity by seeing them imitated in the mother's eye. So when you see a, a baby and a mom or a dad interacting and the, and, the, and the parent looks like the baby does, you know, <laughs> that the baby loves that. That's actually how they start to know who they are. It doesn't work the other way around. The baby doesn't develop a sense of self and then understand who other people are. It's upside down of that. The baby sees himself or herself in the parent's eye and comes to know itself. The way that one researcher put it um, in a book called How Infants Know Mind, she says it this way. This is Vasudevi Reddy. I can give you a citation if you'd like to read more. She says, being imitated being imitated is crucial for intimacy. I just love to think about that because I love babies and I, anytime I can talk about them, I like it even more. But when Paul is talking about imitation and he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, he's saying more than like children, look out there at the good people and try to perform what they do. Right, that's kind of a performance orientation. Let's see if I can be as good as really good people. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about something way more intimate. He's saying, as children, imitate and, uh, and form that bond. That's what I want to magnify in the way that I talk about you to other churches. Paul is... Paul is engaging in a formation of relationship that will outstrip the capacity of suffering and persecution to undermine it. How, what is it that gives people the strength to do what they've done? It's love. That's what kept Jesus on the cross. It's not just simply what we believe, it's who we love. And Paul is resonating with the Thessalonians here at a very deep level, saying, I see you, I love you, God loves you, other people see you, other people love you. And you're going to see these themes kind of keep building forward here. Paul says, you have the experience of being seen. I see you and I talk about you. There's nothing worse, as we know, in suffering than being alone. In fact, loneliness in suffering is what creates trauma. Um, we're, we're not traumatized typically in our suffering if we're not alone. That's why some people can go through really awful things. But if there's another person with them, it's not so bad and the pain can be processed. But when we're alone, that's horrible. And that's what Paul is saying. You're not alone. Fidelity in the midst of pressure requires this kind of relational strength and maturity. And so Paul is building this kind of joy. So our challenge now here in Redeemer is also to be connected to God and to other Christian people so that our sense of identity is firm and our actions are expressions of joy and love that result from knowing that we are loved 
and we are secure. Do you see how we need each other? I need to see me in you. You need to see you in me. I need to be sharing the joy that I have with you, and you need to be sharing the joy that you have with me. And that's how we build resilience, and that's how we actually become like Christ and bear witness to him to others. So Paul now, having established this kind of relational joy, this kind of thanksgiving and boasting and imitation and connection and solidarity and community building so efficiently and so well, now he moves forward into this kind of teaching of the complexities of suffering. And we're familiar with the questions we ask, why? Why is there suffering? That's what's the meaning of it. Why me? Um, am I alone in this? Are there others in my community with me? Um, why them? Why my loved ones, for example? Why are they suffering? Or why are my enemies suffering? How long? This question of endurance. When will it ever end? Paul wants to bring these important questions into this larger context of judgment. There's a bigger picture, and it's a dramatic picture. It's a difficult picture. Paul is saying here that there will be judgment of evil. And that's, of course, comes as no surprise to readers of Scripture. There has always been judgment of evil, but judgment itself is difficult. Sometimes judgment doesn't come swiftly enough or sometimes it comes too swiftly, or sometimes it strikes us as being somewhat offensive. As I put in my little blurb in the email this week, you know, we're used to seeing the orcs die in the thousands, because they're orcs, right? We don't know orcs person, well, we have, metaphorically, maybe we think some people may come to mind. But it seems kind of okay to kill an orc, that's why they're there, you know? But when it starts to come down to real people, we get squeamish. We want evil to be defeated, but we, would, we, don't, we don't want, you know, Bob to be defeated or Mary to be defeated. That that's, gets like, can't we have evil be defeated and everybody be okay? That, that's, that's a modern way of thinking. That's often how we think. We think that basically everybody's basically okay and ought to be treated that way. It's hard for us to think about people, evil people not just evil in the abstract, not just orcs, but people. It's, evil is not an abstract thing. Evil doesn't exist in some disembodied state. Evil is manifest in what Paul calls principalities and powers, satanic and demonic action. Evil exists in people who are in systems, so systems can be evil, but it's only because of the people in the systems that are evil. And of course, there are just evil people that we, we know straightforwardly is they do bad things. Um, it, there isn't some just abstraction. So when the Lord judges evil, it's people along with all the other things, the Satan himself and his minions and the systems that he's built and the people that participate in them will be judged. Part of our gratitude is that we avoid the impact of what we deserve in our own judgment because Jesus has taken that for us. So in time, in history, in the way it feels, judgment is something that's going to happen at the end, but what Paul is saying is it's starting now. Judgment 
is God's authority sovereignly expressed over time. So we know that God is authoritative. We know that God will judge, but God is already judging in a certain kind of way. And that's what Paul's going to start to shape in the Thessalonian consciousness. You are a part of God's judging the world now that will consummate in a final action. So judgment doesn't happen all at once. Paul is starting to share now with the Thessalonians Judgment is visible now through Jesus and his followers. Jesus and his followers play a role in the way that God judges the world. There's going to be a witness. I like to, uh, to think about um, Paul's early gospel proclamation, and you can find a very short summary of what Paul was preaching in his very earliest preaching to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians verses 9 and 10, which I'll read for you. Um, uh, he was preaching to the Thessalonians how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You can imagine him developing those themes, turning from idolatry, serving the living and true God. This is what it would have sounded like to those Gentiles that were not part of the synagogue. They would have understood idolatry and turning to the one true God to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So very early on, the Thessalonians would have known that there's a salvation from something. And what that salvation is, God calls wrath. It's what God's, it's the way God will feel when his character is exerted upon everything that opposes him. It'll destroy it. And we want to be thankful for that, actually. So in verse 5, Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. This is evidence. What is evidence? And why? Um, the evidence is the righteous judgment of God through the faithful endurance of his people for the kingdom. In other words, the suffering of God's people and their patient endurance is part of the judging of the world because on the final day, that will be part of the evidence against the people who are being judged. In other words, the evil people are revealing themselves as opposing God by persecuting his people. His people, by suffering, play a role in the verdict. God's suffering people, as it were, manifest the evil. God's suffering people portray the contrast to the kingdom. God's suffering people are aligned with the work of God and the reaction against them is evidence of unrighteousness that will be judged. Very similar to the way, and this makes sense, that Jesus being crucified exposes what's in human hearts. 
the cross of Christ is part of what brings judgment to bear because it exposes the sin that put him there. Likewise, when the body of Messiah suffers, it's helping to expose and draw out in a very similar way the evil that contradicts and contrasts and combats the work of God in the world. So the suffering of the Thessalonian church isn't meaningless. It's hard. But it's also what happens in the yielding of the wicked world to the kingdom of God. Our suffering, united with Christ's suffering, helps to bring out the evilness in the world as it is drawn towards its defeat, evil's defeat. So this is what the believer in Jesus sees and knows. Oppressors will be punished. Relief will be granted to those who suffer and to those who care about them. And so that's what Paul is beginning to set the stage for in disclosing. So the judging event uh, is the return of the Lord Jesus, kurios in Greek, Melech in Hebrew, king, the King Jesus, king and Lord. When he returns in that way, he will be revealed from heaven. We're in verses seven and going forward. He will be accompanied by his mighty angels. And I'll bet they are mighty. I'll bet they are terrifyingly mighty. And his angels will be his servants. He has his minions too. He could have called 10,000 of them at the time of the cross, as we know, but he didn't. There will be flaming fire. Maybe that's literal. I don't know. It's certainly very metaphorically rich in scripture. We can read that all throughout the prophets. Fire is consuming. It's unstoppable. It, it really doesn't have any remedy, as evil will no longer have any remedy, and it will be consumed within this kind of righteous fire. And here we find Jesus now inflicting vengeance. This is what it says in our translation. Um, verse 8, he will come with flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Inflicting, giving. Um, he's going to be distributing um, this word vengeance, which can be translated in many ways. It's, in the Greek, it means, it, it's, it, the Greek is ek dikasin, which the reason I say that is because ek is the Greek word for out of. And the, the D-I-K is righteousness. The, the metaphor there, the symbol is out of righteousness. It's what's coming out of righteousness. What God is giving is coming out of his righteousness. It's the vengeance that he's inflicting, the retribution for those who do not know him. So it's not as though God is changing his character. It's God's character now is unveiled. There's no more veil. And all of the light and the glory and the fire of that will consume everything that is not able to be in the unveiled state of this righteous Lord. That's why we love the word that we're clothed in righteousness. We have a kind of a veil of a certain sort, which is the righteousness of Christ, which enables us to be 
in his presence when he comes. And there will be eternal destruction. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his might. Uh, that really is a way of describing what eternal destruction is, is to be set apart from God. Where there is no light, there's no life. And there is no hope. And this is what awaits those who have set themselves up to oppose the gospel. So it's a sobering message, but for those who are persecuted, it's a hopeful message because there is an end to the suffering that they're experiencing. And not only an end to the suffering, but actually a consummation of their own relationship with God and with other brothers and sisters. God is very serious about judgment because he's very serious about people. There, there just isn't any way to think about how to uphold justice without, uh, without punishing and, and stopping the evil. It's the way of valuing uh, what's good. I mean, if we think of any kind of uh, injustice, you know, in a, you know, we can think of, 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 of um, you know, American chattel slavery uh, as, a, as a case in point, that it wasn't just the, the uh, abstract evil that was holding people in such oppression. It was bad people who were doing that. And the liberation of the slaves came at a cost of the slave owners, and there had to be judgment of them because of that. Do we resonate with this in Annapolis? When I think of a sermon like this, I think, what are the people in Redeemer Church, myself included, do we experience oppression in this way? I'll be bringing our sermon to a close here quickly. How do we apply things like this, which are so strong? I mean, if we know that there are persecuted Christians all over the world. We pray for them. We'll probably pray for them today. I haven't looked at prayers of the people, but we often or almost always do. And we know that right now there are Christians who are suffering terribly. But what about here in Annapolis? Well, there's a lot of ways that, uh, that we could approach this. I just want to lift up a couple of things here. You know, first of all, um, we do experience suffering here. It may be in different forms, but I know in American culture, um, there's a tremendous movement to make people out to be things. Slavery is just one concrete example, but that's somewhat distant for some of us now, though I know the civil rights movement is still a complicated and difficult challenge in our culture, viewing people as things. But what about media, social media, and the pressure it puts on our young people? You know, that imitation thing goes both ways. When we see other people and we're bonding with the wrong things, it has just as powerful an impact. And when I think about the number of images that young men and women are seeing on social media, simply by people who are trying to make a buck, um, it's a dark side of, you know, of, of imitation. And it's an oppression. People are very hurt by this type of thing. I'm hurt by it. We're all hurt by it. At our pastor's conference I was just at, a statistic was given by our bishop that 60% of pastors struggle with pornography. I, I'm sure that's probably an underestimate. I think all of us have succumbed to the way in which our culture has made people out to be things. And we have to resist intentionally. Is that oppression? 
I think it's a form of oppression. And I think for those of us that have struggled with our minds and our souls, we're in a very difficult battle that requires the same attributes that I described at the very beginning of the sermon here, which is the relational aspect of being together. There's another dimension, though, that calls upon us here in Annapolis, and that's intercession, because we know that there are people who are oppressed in this way, too, the, the way of, of having their houses and their jobs taken away and their bodies harmed. We know that in parts of the world, people are killed, young and old. We know that there are persecuted Christians, and Paul is praying for the Thessalonian church, and he's asking other churches to pray for them, too. And I think that's a word to us to engage in intentional intercessory prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted. I'll just close with this um, bookend in verses 5 and 11 about being considered worthy. Again, this is we language here. We're to be considered worthy, Paul says, to withstand persecution and worthy to stand with Jesus on the last day. And he'll say at the very end of his chapter, again, this is all relational we language. We pray for you always, he says. We pray to our God that God will fulfill our resolve for good works and work of faith by his power. He's acting on our behalf, not only just to be an outsider, Paul says, but to be in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, that his name would be glorified in us and that we would be glorified in him. That's the direction that we're headed, and it's what Paul's saying is available to us right now. So let's embrace the perspective. What Paul describes about the way the world is is not optional. It's the way the world really is. Sin will be judged. Let's be relational. God is at work in you, and he's in work among us, and that's the canvas in which we have to work. Let's pray intentionally for ourselves and for each other. Let's not align with evil, the myth of people as things, or treating other people as things. Let's be sober and truthful about who we are. Let's be imitators of God. Let's see ourselves in his eye. Let's see each other and let's celebrate his presence. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.